Hare Krishna. Welcome back. It's nice to be here again. Just a few adjustments. So, <clears throat> somewhere over it's not straight. <clears throat> okay. Hare Krishna. Um, one moment. So, uh, after traveling, we uh, are now in, uh, in Germany, in uh, uh, Simachalam, the abode of Lord Nishingadev. So, I will do two more sessions on the East-West Dialogue, and uh, so today, from the great treasury of Western thought. His Majesty, the King of Brobdignac, in another audience, was at pains to recapitulate the sum of all I had spoken, compared the questions he made with the answer I had given, then taking me into his hands and streaking me gently, delivered himself in these words, which I shall never forget, nor the manner he spoke them in. My little friend Gildrich, you've made a most um, admirable Panegyric upon your country, you've clearly proved that ignorance, idleness, and, and vice are the proper ingredients for a qualifying leg, as, as a leg, as, for qualifying as legislator. That laws are best explained, interpreted, and applied by those whose interests and abilities lie in perverting, confounding, and eluding them. I observe you. I observe among you some lines of an institution which in its original might have been tolerable, but these half erased and the rest wholly blurred and blotted by corruptions. It does not appear from all you said how any one perfection is required towards the procurement of any one station among you, much less than men are ennobled on account of their virtue that priests are advanced for their piety or learning, soldiers for their conduct or value, valor, judges for their integrity, senators for the love of their country, or counselors for their wisdom. As far as yourself, continued the king, who spent the greatest part of your life traveling, 
I'm well disposed to hope you may either have escaped many vices of your country, but by what I've gathered from your own relation and the answers I've with much pain wringed and extorted from you, I cannot but conclude the bulk of your natives to be the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the earth, on the surface of the earth. Swift, Gulliver's Travels, 2-6. Hmm. All right, so we are looking at, uh, at a... Uh, in Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, um, really at a social contact, uh, besides what Gulliver's Travels are. I think most of us know about Gulliver's Travels as uh, very exaggerated, tall travel stories. Well, um, here we have uh, a social commentary on uh, on politicians uh, and pointing out things like that. Uh, yeah, that's that one who has um, ignorance, idleness, and vice. These are the proper ingredients for qualifying as a legislator. Mm. Laws are best explained, interpreted, and applied by those whose interests and abilities lie in perverting, confounding, and eluding them. So, all we can say is that nothing has changed. Huh? The same, the same uh, corruption, or the same the same hoax that we're seeing in the politics of the world of today, we also see in the past. Oh, one sec, yeah. So what to do? That's uh, understandable, huh? because what he's describing are the, uh, are the, are the conniving and self-centered politics, politicians of the age of Kali. Um, he's not describing a saintly king like Maharaj Yudhisthira, who we read about in Srimad Bhagavatam, who is dedicated uh, to uplift the consciousness of the citizens because, first of all, he's a devotee of Krishna. And because he's a devotee of Krishna, he is, uh, he is pure. He has uh, risen above mundane weaknesses. And he is therefore um, a perfect king. He's able to uh, administer justice. He is able to uphold proper values. He's able to engage all the residents of the kingdom in uh, in spiritual activities so in this way uh, we are seeing that um, what is lacking in society 
is real education. Huh? Real education is the only thing that can, uh, can create true leaders. And real education is not just training in some skills and in some knowledge, but in moral immorality and in uh, achieving the ultimate goal of, uh, of life, which is to dedicate one's life in, in service to the Supreme Lord. Then such a leader can also en engage his followers in, in the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good. Okay. Let's see what else we have here because Okay, well, I looked at travel, actually, because I had traveled, but then I got a lot of Oliver Swift's travel. Hmm. <coughs> <coughs> Just give me a minute. Demand for the solution of a perplexing is the steadying, guiding factor in the entire process of reflection. Where there's no question of a problem to be solved, or a difficulty to be surmounted, the chorus of suggestion flows on at random. We have the first type of thought described. If the stream of suggestions is controlled simply by their e e emotional uh, congenuity, their fitting agreeability into a single picture story, we have the second type. We have a question to be answered, an ambiguity to be resolved, sets up an end and holds the current of ideas to a def definite channel. Every suggested conclusion is tested by its reference to its regulating end, by its pertinence to the problem in hand. This need of straightening out a perplexity also controls the kind of inquiry undertaken. A traveler whose end is the most beautiful path will look for other considerations, will test suggestions occurring to him, and on another principle that if he washes to discover the way to, to a given city, the problem fixes the end of thought and the end controls the process of thinking. Dewey, how we think, part one, one, three. Yeah, so that is, that is the point, you know, when we are addressing a question and, and uh, looking for solutions, um, then we focus uh, the attention. So, therefore, the Bhagavatam is also speaking about question and answers, and says that question and answers are are everywhere. These are the normal 
means of communication, whether we are in the, mar in, in the marketplace, uh, where we inquire about a product, a price, question and answers, um, or whether it's the animals in the forests that are calling out to each other, question and, question and answers. So question and answers are, are there throughout communication. Now, in the Bhagavatam, um, there is a discussion recorded of question and answers between Maharaj Pariksit uh, and Sukadev Goswami. Uh, and the questions that are, that are raised are, uh, yeah, are questions that are of the greatest importance. Um, and that's how it begin. Uh, and the second chapter starts, of the Bhagavatam starts with, Vyasuvaci, iti samprasna samristo vipranam romaharsini pratipudja vachaste sampravaktum upachakrame. Shivas Vyasadev said, Ugrasava, Sutta Goswami, the son of Romaharsana, being fully satisfied by the perfect questions of the Brahmanas, thanked them and thus attempted to reply. Hmm. Then he first offers obeisances to Sukadev Goswami. Um, and then he offers uh, in two verses. Uh, then he just prays. He says before reciting Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the very means of conquest, one should offer respectful obeisance to the personality of Godhead Narayan and unto Narayan Rishi, the supermost human being, unto Mother Saraswati, the goddess of learning, and Srila Vyasadev, the author. Then he says, Muneyo sadhu pristaham bhavat bilokamangalam yadkrita krishna samprasno yenatma supraseedati. O sages, I've been justly questioned by you. Your questions are worthy because they relate to Lord Krishna and so are of the relevance to the world welfare. Only questions of this sort are capable of completely satisfying the self. So taking what Dewey said, that if a discussion doesn't have uh, a question, a clear topic, then the discussion may go here, there, and everywhere. So, by so we are focusing discussion by asking a question, and then uh, we are asking questions about the absolute truth and how to attain the ultimate goal of life, and questions relating to the worship of the of the supreme personality of God, Sri Krishna, and such questions. Uh, are, are described here. O sages, I've been justly requested by you. Your questions are worthy because they relate to Lord Krishna and so of relevance to the world's welfare. Only questions of this sort are capable of completely satisfying the self. That is very nice. And all other questions are simply, uh, simply there to agitate the mind. Mm. 
Okay, let's see what else we have. Um, Common sense appears as a perfectly definite stage in our understandings of things, a stage that satisfies in extraordinary successful way the purposes for which we think. Things do exist even when we do not see them. Their kinds also exist, their qualities are what they act by and are what we act on. And these also exist. These lamps shed their quality of light on every object in the room. We intercept it on its way whenever we hold up an opaque screen. It is the very sound that my lips emit that travel into your ears. It's the sensible heat of the fire that migrates into the water in which we boil an egg. And we can change the heat into coolness by jumping, jumping in a lump of ice. At this stage of philosophy, all non-European men, without exception, have remained. It suffices for, the, for all the necessary practical ends of life, and among our race even, it's the on, only the highly sophisticated specimens, the minds debauched by learning, as Berkeley calls them, who have ever even supposed, suspected common sense of not being absolute true, absolutely true. But when we look back and speculate as to how the common sense categories may have achieved their wonderful supremacy, no reason appears why it may not have been a process just like that by which the conceptions due to Democritus, Berkeley or Darwin. Uh, oh, oh, where are Darwin achieved these similar triumphs in more recent times. In other words, they may, they may have been successfully discovered by prehistoric geniuses whose name who names the night of antiquity has covered up. They may, they've been, they may have been verified by the immediate facts of experience, which read until all language rested on them, and we are now incapable of thinking naturally in any other terms. Such a view would only follow the rule that is proved elsewhere so fertile of assuming the fast and remote to conform to the laws of formation. That we can't observe at work in the small and near. All right. So, pragmatism um, is uh, is based on the principle that um, the truth must must work, right? And uh, of uh, of um, in a, in, a, in a practical sense, otherwise, what is the point of it? Yeah. Um, one sec, it's cold. So, well, we can we can certainly see that uh, 
the knowledge of the Bhagavad Gita is is knowledge that uh, exists on a uh, on a level that goes beyond our imagination that goes one second wasp flew in Yeah, so what we, uh, what we want to address here is, um, is common sense. And let me first, uh, so that I do good, uh, one second. Okay, so we want to, to speak about pragmatism or being pragmatic in the egg. Um, the origin of the word, it says, starts from the late century in the census busy, interfering, conceited via Latin from Greek pragmaticos relating to the fact from pragma, deed, from the stem of pratin to do. The current census, the current sense dates from the mid nineteenth century, and the meaning is dealing with the, with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. And then we can just look up quickly pragmatism. Pragmat that was pragmatic. Pragmatism. Uh, a pragmatic attitude or policy. Ideology has been tempered with pragmatism, philosophy. An approach that evaluates theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. Uh, so certainly, um, the knowledge of Srimad Bhagavatam um, takes us to a realm that goes way beyond anything we can perceive. Um, practical seems to seems to uh, for the for the uh, mundane person seems to relate to what we can perceive with the senses um, because. There, all perception is uh, is only possible through the senses. The only way to gather information is through the senses uh, on the mundane plane. But on the spiritual plane, 
we can also accept knowledge that has been revealed to us. And, uh, it's a recurring theme in my answers or in my comments. And that is the, the ascending knowledge and the descending knowledge. So scriptures describe to us all kinds of elements of reality, which we, uh, we do not perceive. Uh, however, it, it does make sense. Uh, uh, scripture tells us things about the universe. It tells us that there are higher regions in the universe, lower regions in the universe, that the, in the higher regions of the universe, there is a higher standard of life uh, with a longer duration of, of life, a, um, a higher standard of enjoyment and, and diminished suffering. Right? Um, as we go, go down uh, into the universe, the suffering increase, the duration of life becomes uh, shorter and, and yeah, suffering comes more to the foreground and enjoyment is less. Uh, so um, here, the planet Earth, according to the Vedic uh, literature, then is, uh, is supposed to be in the middle of the, uh, uh, yeah, in the middle of the, of the uh, material, uh, universe and so here um, the standard of enjoyment is uh, is not so high and suffering is quite prominent if we go to higher regions you go to celestial regions there there are high standards of enjoyment and long periods of life then above that there are domains where sages reside and in these domains, there is even, uh, even, even higher uh, standards. Uh, and the focus is, is less on sensual enjoyment, but more on uh, spiritual realization. Anyhow, in relation to pragmatism, um, we find that uh, the knowledge, um, the Vedic knowledge, is going beyond sensual perception and describes uh, elements about existence, the origin of existence, the origin of the universe, and all kinds of information that we cannot immediately uh, verify, um, we cannot immediately measure, but it also has a practical application consistent in the entire worldview that is presented. So the Vedic worldview is, is always very practically applicable. It is most pragmatic. And that makes it relevant. Um, if something is, is not applicable on the ground in the everyday reality, uh, then it becomes complicated. Because what are we going to do with that? Uh, we can 
But the Vedic uh, understanding is consistent, consistent with the uh, information. Uh, yes, on the ground, um, with it, 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 it makes sense. It offers us a path by which we can improve the quality of life. Yeah. That is the point. It's like not only giving us abstract theories, but it gives us uh, direct, uh, direct practical advice that, that where we can improve the quality of our life. I think that uh, although I'm not a philosopher, but Kant, uh, in his uh, approach to philosophy, went most abstract and asked <coughs> very abstract questions. And mm, theories that would, uh, would, would deal specifically with the question to be. Um, in philosopher, philosophers have raised the question to be. So when we come to Kant, he went deep into this topic. Um, what, what is, and of course we see it earlier also, Descartes and so many others. And pragmatism is the philosophy that speaks about what to do. And uh, yes, Krishna consciousness does both, uh, answer both questions. What is and what to do? And what is, is ultimately the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who manifests himself in his original Supreme Person, then expands himself into many other personal forms, then expands himself into all his energies, and we, who are also part of these energies, are existing within the energies of the Lord. So, then what to do? Uh, we exist, uh, what is? We exist as, uh, as, as infinitesimal part and parcels of the Supreme Lord. So, eternally little separated parts of the unlimited energy, and and yet each separated eternal part that we are can only flourish when they acknowledge their relationship with the whole. Um, and when the living beings begin to act in the service of, of the entire uh, energy and source of the energy, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, then the living beings fulfill the potential of their existence. Uh, and that is Krishna consciousness. Therefore, Krishna, the original Supreme Personality of Godhead, must be placed in the center of everything. And by doing so, and this is available on, uh, on, on philosophical platforms, where we may inquire what is, and it is available on, on practical levels. 
where we may inquire what to do. And so um, Krishna consciousness is very relevant on, on all spheres in, in, in answering questions of, of causality and in offering practical, practical knowledge as to what to do. So, um, from Ecclesiastics, a man that has traveled knows many things, and he that has much experience will declare wisdom. He that has no experience knows little, but he that has traveled is full of prudence. When I traveled, I saw many things, and I understand more than I, than I can express. From Ecclesiastics 34. 9-11. Now, that is a topic which I can answer a little bit from personal experience because I have also traveled. So, when we travel, uh, we are coming to, uh, um, to far-off places where uh, many things may be going on that, uh, that we had never seen before. Um, so, let me describe a little bit. Um, so, in my youth, I, uh, I boarded a bus, which took me, well, I changed many buses, but I went by various buses and other transport to Afghanistan. Um, it was very interesting. I came into the, the town of Herat. It was a very dry place. It was, there was lots of, it, 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 uh, there was desert surrounding it. There were rocks and sand. Oh. Um, we came to Herat, in the middle of Herat, there was a sand-colored fort. It looked like made of rammed earth, but it was uh, it was a large fort, and uh, and there were many uh, smaller uh, cottage type of uh, houses around it, and a marketplace. I remember that, well, in one of these shops, uh, in one of these shops, uh, in front of the shop, there was a car. And the man in the shop had this old car, and he would just take a piece off, and he would make it into something. So he made a piece of the door, he took and cut the metal, made it into a metal plate, and would beat it into a shape and make a metal bowl out of that. He was taking the tires and he was making sandals out of the tires. In this way, he was 
recycling the entire car. And he was just uh, taking off different pieces and making it into something. And it was very, uh, it impressed me a lot. I mean, I, I, we didn't have phones and cameras and I was rather living a very simple life, uh, traveling with as little as possible. That was the idea. The idea was to travel with the minimum. Now, I had a, but I had a guitar. So I was able to strap my guitar over my shoulder and it had a case. And then around the guitar, I had wrapped uh, a few t-shirts and a few uh, extra things. And in this way, I was able to, uh, to get by and survive. Yeah. And, and I had a little roll with a, you know, with a sleeping bag. But the guitar was, of course, uh, not, that was a labor of love. I had to have it. Uh, sometimes I climbed into mountains, then I would leave the guitar behind and bring a flute and, and, and play on the flute. You know? But I traveled and I saw many, many places and many, many people. Um, but as I was watching, uh, the different places and the different people and observing, I learned many ways, many things from the ways they did things. And that was valuable. Uh, um, but after eight years of travel, I came to a saturation point. And I realized that I could not just travel and travel and travel, that I had to also uh, I had to also, uh, I could not just watch and observe what other people were doing, but that it was time for me to make my own life. I felt I'm here traveling, watching how people make their lives, but I don't, I myself, I don't really make a life. I'm just watching other people's lives. In this way, travel for me was a way to buy some time, a way for not having to make a, a commitment in life to a particular uh, objective or a particular mission or goal. I could remain detached and just be an observer. Now, uh, then I, I later did make a commitment and to a place and to a task. And I settled into Vrindavan and I made that uh, the place where I committed myself and later was asked to do something in Mayapur as well. So in this way, I have over the years uh, um, committed to Krishna consciousness. And so I have made commitments in, in places, but then I took sannyas, um, and then again, I traveled extensively. And, and again, it had that benefit of not being so entangled and not being so, uh, one is in a place for a short time, 
adjust to whatever is there. One is uh, adjusting to the people uh, one, is, one is with that are sometimes hosting us, or we are temporarily staying with. And we have pleasant ex exchanges and so on. But then we move on and we start, uh, start fresh. And in this way, um, this travel is a constant uh, renewal. Um, and uh, that's where the old saying, a rolling stone gathers no moss. Staying in one, one place then, so much moss is there uh, that begins to grow. Fixed patterns, uh, relationships with people uh, that sort of are based on, uh, on, 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 on repetition. Uh, the same neighbor, uh, good morning. Uh, uh, the same, the same routine and everywhere people are locked into a network of routine and this network also ensnares us. Then we travel and we just break away from all such networks and, uh, and start again. Of course, as long uh, one can, can never fully uh, escape uh, any network uh, because we are, we are bound in the material world by the three bolts of material nature. Uh, we're bound that we have to eat. We are, uh, we are bound that we uh, have to sleep. We are bound uh, that we need security. Um, um, so uh, eating, mating, sleeping, defending, mating, one can give up, but then one has to also live with that. Um, so one has to deal with it. One either has to, um, the desire for mating, either one needs to enter into, relation, into a relationship and so on, or one has to enter into a discipline to, to rise above. Mm. Of course, when we shift all our energy to Krishna, we can, and, and service to Krishna, we can become realized on a spiritual platform, and then mating is no longer uh, required. Um, so uh, even, even the others, uh, other demands may be minimized. Uh, eating may be minimized, sleeping may be minimized, and may all be simplified. And we see amongst our Goswamis that they greatly simplified these things and hardly slept, hardly ate, and, uh, and, and had nothing to defend. Uh, Sanatan Goswami was, uh, was traveling as a mendicant, but he had taken an associate, uh, his prior servant, and the servant had hidden eight gold coins. But some innkeeper kept an astrologer, and the astrologer 
the astrologer was able to uh, to uh, determine that the servant had eight gold coins. So the innkeeper, um, he uh, had a plan to uh, to to take that by force and to kill these these people uh, for it. But Sanandan Goswami, he could understand the innkeeper then. Uh, received them very, very friendly. And Sanatana Goswami said he needed help to get across the hill, and the innkeeper was uh, certainly very willing, and so on. And uh, and then Sanatana Goswami said, what is happening? I'm coming as a mendicant. This innkeeper is treating me with so much respect. What is happening? There's something wrong. So he asked his, his servant, he figured it out. He said, do you have any valuables on you? Since he, Sanatana Goswami didn't have himself. The servant who had eight gold coins said, I have seven gold coins. Sanatana Goswami said, give. He said, how could you carry this death knell? You know, don't you realize that we'll be killed for this? Give this, give these coins to me. He took the coins and gave them to the owner uh, of the inn, to the innkeeper. And the innkeeper said, oh, thank you very much, sir, for offering these to me. Uh, he said, like, you know, I was aware uh, that you were in possession of eight gold coins. And I would have, in the night, I would have taken them by force and would have killed you, but you've saved me from this sinful, activity, right? Now, because you're such a wonderful man, I will not take these coins and I will take you across the, uh, uh, I will take you across the, the difficult mountain route. No, Sanatana Goswami said, he said, look, I'm a prisoner of the government. Right? You take these coins and uh, uh, if you don't take them, someone else will take them. So better you take them. And so in this way, they made an agreement and both were very satisfied. Then Sanatana Goswami went back to his servant and said, whose name was Isan, he said, Isan, are you still having one gold coin? Yes, I do. Then Isan, take your coin and return to your home. Hmm. In this way. Sanatana Goswami uh, freed himself from from all material entanglement and kept it very simple. And then uh, the Goswamis, Rupa Sanatana, would stay in Vrindavan, and Sanatana Goswami would not stay very long in one place. So they would change. Uh, they would change their. Uh, residents, they would s sleep under a different tree every night, and uh, yeah, sometimes he stayed in some places. Uh, of course, as uh, we see, as Raghunath Das came there, uh, also lived austere. But at one point, Rupa Goswami was seated at uh, at at Radhakund, and. Uh, and he was sitting in the sun and just ignoring it. But then 
um, Sanatan saw that Radharani stood there, a girl stood there, shading him with her cloth. Then, uh, then Sanatan told Rupa, no, no, you must make bhajan kutir. You cannot take service of Sibata Radharani. So, minimal, minimal needs may remain in this world because as long as we are in the material body, even if we are the most renounced and most simple, we can never be free. We can never be completely free from material entanglement because after all, the body itself forces us to do many things. On the spiritual platform, one is liberated from such a body and then there are no dictates in the spiritual world, in the spiritual, uh, in this in one's spiritual existence, the body is not separate from the consciousness, and we exist there as pure soul. And in that ex- existence of pure soul, we have a pure spiritual body, and uh, which is not inhibited by uh, all the limitations of a material body. There is no fatigue, there is no fame, no pain. Uh, one is not forced by the body. Uh, here we are forced to eat, forced to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to pass various uh, things. Um, this body is dictating us to do so many things. In the, on the spiritual platform, in the eternal spiritual body, there are also clothes, but the clothes are not required for, uh, for dealing with the, uh, the temperature. Uh, here we are dressed up according to the, uh, uh, the temperature, but and then, of course, while we're wearing, we're at the same time looking at something that may be a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit comfortable and, and or, or look a little bit good. So it's how it feels, how it looks. But in the spiritual clothes, are just a further expression of uh, they're they're simply there to enhance our mood of service. Uh, and the cowherd boys dress up in clothes that are similar to Krishna's because they are in the world of Krishna. And they wear cloth just as Krishna does. And then they're decorating themselves with forest leaves and, and flowers just as Krishna does. And so uh, in the world, of Krishna. Um, there are also houses, there are also clothes, and there is a culture of a style of cooking. Um, there is a whole, uh, all these things exist in their original spiritual form. Mm. And the material world is considered the shadow reflection of the original spiritual world, 
where we are in imitation. But as the shadow reflection, as a shadow follows the contours of the origin, original object, it does not have all the intricacies of the original object in terms of its colors, in terms of all its qualities. Therefore, the material imitation of the spiritual world doesn't have all the tastes and flavors and mellows of the original spiritual world. Therefore, the material can never satisfy and the spiritual satisfies the soul and facilitates the soul in satisfying the Supreme Lord, which is the most satisfying to the soul. And here in the material world, um, the mind predominates and the soul entrapped in a material body is, is in a dormant state and the mind predominates and tries to enjoy the material energy for himself, but can never find fulfillment or satisfaction. And that, and therefore, when e but even in the material world, when we take the imperfect material things and offer them in service to the Supreme Lord, um, they become, uh, they can actually satisfy the Supreme Lord because the Lord doesn't look at the object that we offer, uh, but looks at the intention by which they offer it. He accepts the service and not the object. And in this way, uh, even offering material things that are in, in itself from an imperfect realm, when they're offered to the Supreme Lord, produce perfect results. And thus the Lord is satisfied, and thus we also become satisfied. And that is the nature of, uh, of spiritual life. All right. Uh, I'm happy to be with you once again and to be able to continue our streaming. I'm looking forward to meeting you again tomorrow at the same time. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna. Feel Prabhupada. Yeah, the darshan of Nishingadev, you you can get, but I don't know how to. Uh, uh, um, this this is not my regular phone, and I actually don't even know how to on YouTube uh, put in a, a picture or a video. But I can uh, quickly show it on my other phone that I'm using. See, where was that Darsha? Yeah. fix that tomorrow. That was yesterday. Mm. I'll send some pictures and some videos uh, on uh, on Facebook the next few days. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.
All right. I wish you a very uh, inspiring time. Hare Krishna.